Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to tabletop game design. This episode has been made possible thanks to the excellent folks behind Breakout Con 2017 in Toronto, Ontario. Episode 117. What's up in tabletop gaming? Recorded at Breakout Con 2017. Presented by Robin Delos, Jonathan Gilmore, Eric Lang, and Michelle Lyons McFarland. Moderated by Jonathan Lavallee. Coming. This is What's Up in Tabletop Gaming. I'm your moderator. Uh, my name's Jonathan. We have a distinguished get, uh, group of panelists over here. Uh, the only one who wrote the bio on the page is Robin, so I'll read his first from here. We'll it this way. I had something done in the Robin Laws version of what I had stolen from, but by all means, I will read what he's been providing. So, Robin D. Laws designed such role playing games as Hillfolk, Feng Shui, The Esoterrorists, and Ashen Stars. He's the author of eight novels plus sh- the short story collection New Tales of the Yellow Sign and has edited five original short fiction anthologies. Robin is the winner of five gold and five silver Emmy awards in the coveted Diana, Diana Jones Award. That's correct. His works have been translated into ten languages, and you can hear his soothing voice here as well on the weekly podcast Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And sometimes Ken and Robin consume media. <laughs> uh, to his right is Michelle Lyons-McFarlane, who is IGDN president, uh, developer for Onyx Path on the Dark Era series, and a person who has worked on probably more games than you would care to count. Um, she is currently working, has her own company as well, Growling Door Games, uh, where she's produced her Shakespeare-esque game, A Tragedy in Five Acts. Uh, then moving to the right, there's Jonathan Gilmore, uh, mm-hmm. pushing the envelope of how stories interact with board games. Uh, he is one of the designers of Dead of Winter and the recently released Wasteland Express. Uh, he's just finished up a Kickstarter release called Dinosaur Island. Uh, and has, of course, the proper name, the best name spelt in the correct fashion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then to my left is uh, Eric Lang, designer extraordinaire with a list of games a mile long. Someone with a deep understanding of, and love of how gaming and, and thought works on games. As well, who recently broke Kickstarter with the new uh, release through Cool Mini or Not, Rising Sun. He's the man with the hair, Eric Lang. And winner of the coveted Diana Jones Award. Yeah. Is it Diana Isn't it Jones Diana Jones? Jones? Because it's from like the Indiana Jones. Yeah, but we don't admit to that. Okay. <laughs> it's Diana Jones, apparently. Yes. All right. So, um, what I always feel is a better thing is because this is a very much a Q and A kind of thing. So, if people have questions, put your hand up. Um, I will moderate and point out people, and then we can pass it to our panelists. Uh, so, does anyone have any? Let me to sub moderate. Do we want to have oh, any statements on the state of the industry? We could totally do that. Yes. Yeah. So, so as the sub moderator has said, <laughs> let's start with that. So, Robin, if you want to write a quick statement on the state of the uh, industry, uh, the state of the industry is strong. Uh, uh, gaming has. I, I think we're in an interesting pattern now where we are uh, sort of consolidating our uh, uh, strengths, and I think the interesting area of growth now is in events like this, is in infrastructure, where uh, we had a, a great sort of burst of rejuvenation on all levels, first from the advent of 
uh, the board game uh, the revolution of the uh, increasing popularity of sort of first of all German style board games and that has widened out into an incredible thing. Kickstarter comes along, allows tabletop role playing games to once again uh, access an audience and now access them on a level that allows us to awesome them up wildly uh, and uh, circumvent the kind of uh, broken down uh, uh, retail uh, distribution system that had existed up to that point. And as more and more people are discovering gaming, particularly through uh, the internet, people are coming in from all uh, directions now. All sorts of different people are entering our hobby, and uh, now we're seeing the fruits of that with being able to, you know, fill uh, an event room here. So uh, that enables an incredible creative opportunity because whatever game you want to make, there might be an audience for it, or you might be able to build an audience for it. So uh, I think the golden age of gaming. It's continuing, and uh, any threats that we face are um, external. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the world might be in trouble, but gaming. <laughs> right, Michelle. Um, to kind of build on what Robin said, I think that the state of gaming is actually super awesome right now, um, and I think it has room to improve, which is really exciting. Um, I've been working in the industry since 2000, so I came in like at the beginning of the D20 boom, um, which is where I started freelancing. And so I've seen, you know, rises and and falls. And uh, and overall, I think that this is a time of really kind of unprecedented variety and the ability to be successful in that variety um, between the bar to publishing is low and yet you can get a really good product out uh, the tech has come along in ways that make it so much easier and nicer um, to get a game that's good and polished done and get it to consumers who are able and want to use it that um, it's it's really unprecedented and it's really exciting so that's Jonathan uh, I mean I've only been in the industry for four or five years now, so I think I'm probably the least qualified to talk about it. But I think that, well, you guys are both correct that, I mean, there's a continued insurgence of fantastic games. There's also a, a surge of mediocrity, not just in this industry, but other ones too, where there's a lot of games coming out, and now just designing a, a good game isn't enough. Like for a game to be successful, it has to be a great game, and I think that's I think one thing that competition is good is it drives <coughs> designers to do the best game they can. But I think it also means that there's a lot of just okay games coming out, and okay usually doesn't warrant a second play. Yeah, Eric, uh, I agree. Uh, I mean, I agree with all all of them. I guess the uh, the main thing I'll add is that I think that. Um, the biggest thing I've noticed uh, in our uh, is the consumer culture, the rise of uh, the knowledge base in our consumer culture right now. The average game player, the average like game with ten or more games in their collection, probably <coughs> understands more about the craft of game design today than most top end game designers in the seventies and eighties knew at the time. That the craft has grown so much, and the our consumption of that, like through open-ended uh, uh, and very, very uh, transparent blogs like Wizards of the Coast and even Fantasy Flight, um, people like Robin and Ken dispensing like so much knowledge and wisdom, 
we, we understand games much better, which means our audience is more sophisticated than it's ever been before. That's also driving the bar. The, the, the bar to actually publishing is low, but the bar to uh, excellence and being, uh, and being noticed is, I think, higher than it's ever been before. Um, it's exciting, it's intimidating, um, and it's exactly as it should be, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, before I go into questions, I am going to make a small moderation note. We're going to keep any Kickstarter questions to an absolute minimum, preferably to none. Um, uh, just because, again, that's not, you know, that's been touched on lightly, but it's not a, this is very much not a how-to Kickstarter panel. So, so any functional questions like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nix. Uh, but we're going to open up to the floor. So does anyone have any questions? Just put up your hand. And uh, if not, I will... Uh, yes, in the far back. Um, in regards to some of the games that have been coming out recently in the last few years, I've noticed that there's been a trend towards trying to involve technology in some way, actual technology, not the technology we build the games with, but the technology that goes hand-in-hand with the game. Do you find that that is a, a trend that you see happening more often, that we're trying to bring in technology to help support gameplay or design anyway. So let Eric start with that one. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. Um, as a yes, there's definitely more technology being integrated in both the design and the consumption of games. But um, I honestly, as a percentage of gaming as a whole, I don't think that number is actually that high. The the, the number of games being released is so. Uh, we, we double our output at least every year over year for the last five years. Um, and so with that number in mind, I don't think there's that much. I think there's a lot more traditional gaming out there. Uh, we're still at the point right now where uh, integration of tech into the very fabric of the game is still a little bit bleeding edge. But uh, like supplements and, uh, and game aids for, um, like especially even in RPGs and in, uh, miniature games and uh, uh, and board games, that's everywhere. I mean, every board game I know has a scoring app, especially Euro games, character creation stuff for, uh, for RPGs, uh, army managed for that. that that's going to get more and more sophisticated. But I still don't see, I, still, I see far fewer titles that are from the ground up, integrated digital and uh, gaming than I thought I would um, from two years ago. I would have expected a lot more at this point. Okay, going on this way, John. Uh, I think as a player, games that do that, like XCOM or Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, do it really well. And as a designer, it's an exciting way to do things that you can't necessarily do with a traditional game. And Mansions of Madness is nice because it automates the uh, the bad player and hides all the information from the players and lets them have an almost RPG-like experience where the narration and the game is growing... That'd be much harder to do. I mean, they tried to do it in the first edition with a player, and it just wasn't as successful. Um, so, I think as a designer, it's really exciting to try to think about how you can integrate apps in an exciting way that augments the game and doesn't just turn it into, well, I could play it on the app and not even have the game in front of me. So, I teach at a STEM school. Um, so, I, I work with tech people in my day job and they're young and upcoming coders and engineers and, and, and scientists and one of the things that I've learned from that crossed over with like the Venn diagram of that in my gaming world is that apps are so easy to put together and so hard to make worthwhile um, and there's a very glutted market kind of like you know we were talking about the bar for excellence on, in uh, tabletop games being pretty high that bar is even higher if you've got an app. And people who know apps and people who know tabletop games 
are rarely the same people. And so you're, when you try to integrate that kind of tech, you're really dramatically raising the difficulty of coming up with a good project. Obviously, it's possible, but it tends to be a lot harder than people think it is, um, just because then both sides have a learning curve. So I think that that's kind of contributing to not having as many of them as we thought we would by now, uh, just because a lot of the people who publish tabletop do it part-time out of their virtual garage. And, and you know, they don't have as many resources as they might otherwise, and that's a whole different... These, these worlds exist on different scales. Our people have an interesting, I think, resistance to the idea of integrating yeah. apps into gaming. Uh, because uh, they, I think what they want out of this experience is a form of highly mediated uh, social interaction. And so uh, you often, as designers, there's a lot of really tempting things that if you could find somebody to give you the money to do all of the development you would need, there are incredible possibilities for uh, adding that to the experience. But I don't know how many people really want that. Uh, there's just the practical thing of does everybody at the table all have the same platform and get them willing to pay, you know, coordinate them all paying $3.99 for the same app or something? seems like that would be relatively easy in today's world, but oddly not so much. Um, but I think a, a lot of that reason is that people are, uh, and these are the same people who are looking at their phones and tweeting about the game throughout, would still say, oh, no, but we don't want to have uh, an uh, uh, app an, telling app. us what to do or taking focus away from us. Um, and so I think that it's almost sort of an interesting sort of emotional identification question about it, who we are and who we want to be when we're gaming. But what else is coming is there's going to be an incredible uh, VR revolution uh, that is just we're just on the cusp of. And it will be interesting to see the degree to which uh, the people who are uh, steeped in tabletop are scooped up to start working on those things or whether, as happened with uh, electronic video games, that people inspired by all of the principles of gaming will then go and restart their own separate thing that will be considered its own totally separate track. So in you know five to six years, when we're trying to get through customs to go to visit the states, and oh, I work in game design, it might not, it, the assumption might stop being, oh, you work in video games, and it might become, oh, you work in VR. Well, uh, I got, I got a question for you. Cthulhu just ripped my arm off the other night, and I would like to know how to get through the Cthulhu <laughs> your arm off level in VR. Um, so it's, we're sort of on the brink of something happening, but uh, there may be sort of weird streams of cultural resistance that keep our track over here while a new track develops over there. Oh, it's worth noting. I have a, my game closet goes back a ways, and we have uh, the VHS Clue game. Right, um, and we've got seen it with DVDs, and these are quaint, right? I mean, we we have to have a functioning VCR to still play the Clue VCR game, and that's not easy to come by um, anymore. So, anytime that you adopt technology, you're racing obsolescence in ways that a book does not run into and so there's always kind of that too you know is are we going to make back our money before the tech that we invest in uh becomes unusable 
And the, the perceived value of electronic goods is, is an interesting question because I think people are much happier to pay for a premium set of books uh, than they are to pay for an, an electronic app that actually, uh, you know, had a scale of investment in it on, you know, orders of magnitude higher. But that this physical object, whether it's or you know, a big box of game pieces, feels like it's worth eighty bucks, whereas this. Uh, tablet app feels like it should be worth any other tablet app, which is like a dollar ninety nine. Thank you. Okay. So yes. In kind of to go on top of that, like part of the appeal of board games with my peers is that you're not having the screen time and low attention span. You're you're communicating with people, and with the with the explosion of VR, don't you think a lot of people? At least this community will shy away from that. I know Mansions of Madness is fantastic, but so I'm just going like, to stop you. Just yeah. that's the question right there: is do you feel like uh, I mean, I'm going to throw it back to you, Robin. Do you feel that's kind of something you, you covered because the, the yes, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that there's going to be the, the biggest resistance to, to playing role tabletop role playing type things on, on VR is going to be from established role players, and that uh, there might be an entire other new crowd of people who are having Cthulhu rip their arm off in a new, exciting 3D way. And those streams may or may not intersect. Okay, I'm going to put out the rest. Does anyone want to answer that or do you want to jump? Because we covered that ground a little bit, and I don't want to, you know, I want to see if we have other questions. I mean, I think with apps, it's important for it to be unobtrusive. Like, one of the nice things about Mansion of Madness is it's off to the side. It's not one person looking at it. It's at the end of the table, and you, you focus on the board in front of you, and then you look at that, and you're going back and forth. So I think that portion of it, or like in uh, XCOM, it's one person's job to do that, and it's like an interactive board, so. Yeah, it's a big topic. We can talk about it for hours. Yeah. Just make sure that, to, that other stuff is covered. So, so I'm throwing it uh, to the floor. Are there other questions currently? I have a different question. Well, I don't see anyone else with their hand up, so if you can uh, just give us the question. and uh, So do you, in the future of board gaming, do you guys see legacy games coming out at a, at a faster clip. Uh, I know it takes for, forever to take to, to produce these. And in what sort of games do you f- foresee these coming out at? Okay, so I'll throw those to the two board game people we have here. So I there. know currently, uh, personally, I know currently about 22 legacy games in development right now uh, that, we'll, <laughs> that we'll see within the next two years. I was going to see an evolution of it too. Like it's not just going to be exactly like it is right now. It's going to be taking small portions of it. Uh, like Friedman Freeze did Fabled Fruit, which is a different take on a legacy style of game. So I, I would not count that. Like I'm talking about like like physically full <coughs> on change the product. Yeah. So um, interesting. I actually put those kind of games in a bucket, a different bucket. So we're talking about games like Fabled Fruit or Max versus Minions or stuff where you have. It do, you don't change the game permanently, or the Harry Potter deck building game. You don't change the game permanently, but you do. They do sequester part of the content of the game, where you get to uh, open it bit uh, piece by piece. Uh, I mean, nowadays uh, because we're gamers and we love putting labels on things, uh, we've uh, we've already, we've called that uh, discoverable content, right? okay. and that is um, I actually put that in a slightly different bucket, and we'll see a ton of that. Almost, it's funny at this point. Um, I would say most of the publishers I talk to or work with, when we're talking about games a little bit, hey, do you have what, what kind of discoverable content is in this game? Sometimes before knowing what the game is. <laughs> um, and like, uh, 
both uh, conversations I have now within the last uh, six months or a year, when I talk to a publisher and they were asking about a new game, they'll uh, the, you know, the, now it's is it com- cooperative as well as competitive? That was the last few years. Now is is it legacy? Mm-hmm. What what legacy stuff can we do? Uh, I do think there are a lot coming. Um, I do think that uh, I believe, in my opinion, I hope I'm wrong. I really do, but I believe that we've already hit a little bit of, of fatigue with um, collectively with a particular type of legacy game uh, because right now we're hitting that ceiling of. Uh, where the general game market's considering just disposable games, and even though most of us don't play games in our collection more than five or six times, the idea that this game has a limited number of plays in it is very off-putting to a large percentage of the market. They buy these things as items for your shelf that is supposed to last forever. Um, Rationally speaking, I don't care. I, I play every game five times maximum. I'd love to play more of these. But I am starting to see some resistance to the concept already. I do believe, in my opinion, of the 22-some-odd games I see on the market, I think most of them actually won't do very well. Um, again, I hope I'm wrong. Jonathan? I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think of the ones that I know of, it's it's difficult. I think what Pandemic Legacy did really well is it took a game that people were already familiar with and added that to it. Right. Well, a lot, of this, a lot of this is, like, like take games that... More than 5,000 people know Legacy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually going to kind of modify that and pass it over to our two um, predominantly RPG panelists and say, is there a particular thing that you think that is happening now that is maybe hitting that wall or, or is like that, you know, that kind of saturation wall or that people are having an issue? Or is there something coming along that that's a thing that is exploding and, and people want to see more of? Uh, well, first, as, a, as an administrative note, and whenever we do this panel, we should start by asking Eric, what's the new buzzword? <laughs> it's true. I'll remember that for the next time. That'll be the same guy. I think uh, there's a lot of energy in the Empowered by the Apocalypse yeah. space. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as they run out of genres, uh, we'll have to move on to something there. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a high-class problem for Are Empowered you talking about the... Uh, could you go into more detail? The apocalypse. Are you talking about games like? Uh, are you talking about games like Rust? Uh, so they're they're games that come out of apocalypse world. So okay. that they have a core system that a lot of people are, are adapting to every other possible. Oh, it's a mechanical genre. thing, not a genre. Yeah. So it's like a yeah. dimension. Gotcha. Um, and so the first one is set in a post-apocalyptic world. Hence the name. Hence the uh, somewhat syllable-filled description of the entire system. Uh, <laughs> but eventually, you're going to run out of. Uh, different things to power with the apocalypse. <laughs> right, and sorry, Michelle, and then the mind. Um, really, I'd have to agree with Robin. Um, I think that uh, PBTA is kind of the new hotness. Uh, well, the, the new three-year-old new, hotness. New, the three, well, it, but it's kind of achieving that sort of like, oh, it's a powered by the apocalypse game, and people recognize that. Right, it, it's it's getting that large brand recognition, and it may be cresting um, at this point as people are like, yeah, well, everybody else has done it, and I I don't know what I can really bring that's new to it, right? So uh, so I think that that might be coming to it, but I don't know what's up next. Okay, 
So question and then then in the back. So <laughs> with the uh, the legacy style game, um, do you define the legacy style game as the one where um, like pandemic legacy or risk legacy, where you have your limited number of playthroughs um, versus like uh, I think it's called Charterstone, where um, you have your limited number of playthroughs where you modify the game and then you basically created a new kind of game, like your own version of like a work placement game. Well, technically, you can continue to play Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy after the and last game. Technically, the original, yeah. okay, uh, the, the actually the, the original uh, value proposition. I hate using that term. I apologize, but that, <laughs> the, 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 but this game was pitched inside Hasbro, and I was uh, lucky enough to be part of some of the conversations. The original value proposition of Risk Legacy was you play the game 17 times and you end up with a custom version of Risk Legacy. So that is, the, um, they didn't know they were creating a genre, of course. Most people, mo- most genre-defining um, games don't realize that. It becomes a genre when someone else rips you off. Exactly. Right. exactly. <laughs> um, and luckily they were the first to rip themselves off, so good for them, right? <laughs> um, but the... Um, the, so I, I wouldn't define the limited, the, the disposable nature of it as that. I wouldn't say that's the defining characteristic of what legacy is. That's just a, um, that's an effect. That uh, that's a, um, that's an effect of the game. But like the, I think it's still such a new genre. I, I hate to try to put it into a box, but the 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 broad idea of what makes a legacy game a legacy game is that um, the act of play in any given session of the game has real dramatic and uh, game-altering effects on future plays of the game, um, and permanent. That's the big part of it. So unlike a campaign game where you can play it over and over and over again, theoretically play the same game, with Legacy Game, you could not do that. You play game one once, you play game one, two, once, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think Charterstone, what you're talking about is, uh, I think that's a, uh, I hope you can pull it off, but it sounds like, it, it. to me when I heard it, it just sounded exactly like, uh, Risk Legacy. We're just making a game that will become its own thing. Um, I'd love to see if you can pull that off. Like, especially in Euro games, there are, Euro games are usually so tightly constructed yeah. that um, they're they're designed in such a um, on a principle that if you had done anything different with the game, if you had tuned any knob a little differently, the game would have fallen apart. Those are the best ones. So, uh, a game that's so tightly wound that with infinite possibilities for uh, for Design space sounds a little unrealistic to me, but if anybody can pull it off, it's changing. Thank you. Jonathan, you have anything to add? Or? No, no. Okay, just to, again, because of the board game question, I'm going to kind of throw something similar, but uh, instead of it talking about like a defined kind of one thing, um, there are seem to be a larger number of, of adaptable systems for people, because I remember when we started, we did, like there was the, like, the, the open license the OGL for D20, and then that was kind of it. And now there's the OGL, there's Fate, there's, uh, the, 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 still the Cortex is still under technically an open mm-hmm. license, and, and, and powered by the Apocalypse. And, and uh, Gumshoe and, Gum and, and Drama System are both open. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so, with this, um, so with this kind of wider options of people to, to be able to, to create their own games based off of these systems, do you see, like again, we talked about Powered by the Apocalypse, but what other ones are, are really kind of maybe in focus or, or becoming a because I know, like, if we took a, a gumshoe, there's now now all the wide variety of, of gumshoe games, like, I mean, Ashen Stars and Night right. Agents. And well, uh, those are all produced by Pelgrane. It's yeah. such, uh, there is now a third-party gumshoe game called uh, Bubble Gumshoe, and yes. there are, uh, there's an Ars Magica version of it coming from Alice, which is uh, really cool. But um, gumshoe is very specific to investigative uh, gaming, so that's already, you know, one sort of uh, tight... Uh, uh, lane way. But I think the whole exciting thing about the OGL uh, 
Because basically from the point of view of a publisher is after a certain period when you, you, know, you want to have exclusive rights over your game engine when you're starting, but, af- but after it started to grow and found an audience, that having an OGL for it is essentially marketing for your game, right? That it's a, a selling point uh, that you can uh, take advantage of. And so uh, I think it's great even as a statement that you are uh, part of a creative community with other people and that you want people to come and play with your groovy, uh, you know, colored ball with all those nice sparkly <laughs> bits that you that you put on it. Specifically glued that sparkly bit there. Right. And so it'd be interesting to see, you know, to see that, uh, you know, the closest to not doing that is Savage Worlds, which is very popular, which has a, it's not an open license, yeah. but it's an easily acquirable license if you're willing to contact Shane. And mm-hmm. I think there are minimal hoops to, to jump through yeah. there. Um, and so I think it's just going to, uh, the next person who comes up with a cool game engine and wants to keep it exclusive to themselves is going to face a difficult choice of, well, actually it's probably more of an advantage to open this up, even if I have an emotionally proprietary sense over it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Robin had me groovy, shiny, sparkly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Michelle, what do you feel about... Um, I mean, I, I, Robin's covered the, the big ground of that, mm-hmm. but like, you know, in particular, um, you know, because we look at Gumshoe, and Gumshoe actually has a few outside ones. Um, you know, like I know Fate has that as well, and Powered by the Apocalypse is the, is the big one that kind of everyone kind of grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel about the, um, about like, like those other ones that, that have that, that haven't seemed to quite have the same reach? Um, I think. So looking back at D20, when we had the, the OGL and everybody made their game a D20 game, they weren't making it a D20 <coughs> game because D20 fit everything that they wanted to do. They were making it a D20 game because everybody knew how to play it, and it was a chance to play in that sandbox. By having all of these different licenses, we're kind of like building separate sandboxes, right? But also there's kind of an expectation of a wider familiarity on the part of players than there used to be, right? It's not necessarily the case that every time you go to a new game, you've completely got to teach your group something new because they will have never played anything but D&D or Pathfinder. I mean, now you can say D&D or Pathfinder, and that was not true (laughs) 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago. Jeez, I've lost my... my well, you te- even if it was line. 10 years ago, 10 years ago, the Pathfinder, some people would be like, what's that? Yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, so I think that that the ability to have those out there is really one of the things that's making a difference, and it's not considered sort of this presumptuous vanity thing if you take your system and you make an OGL for it anymore, right? It's not like, oh, he thinks he's Dungeons & Dragons. No, it's... It's, you know, the recognition that you're doing community building when you're doing that. You're providing a service, um, and you're, you're kind of giving something back to people who are going to come after you and might find the thing that you have cool. It's kind of like publishing with Creative Commons, um, which is another thing that's kind of been coming up, um, especially among indie uh, developers. But that idea that you can publish something and other people could run with it if they wanted to, um, and that's okay. Uh, Eclipse Face does a lot with that. Yes, yeah. They're all they're all run by cybernetic hippies, though. So. Right, it's and, true. And, and the Anarchist lesson, hippies. Right, and and the lesson that they've taught, which is very important, is people will still want to buy your book, mm-hmm. yeah, even if you make the content available 
through other means. In fact, it will increase the number of people who want to buy your book. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, question for you, and then uh, if anyone else has a question, put up your hand, and then we'll go from there. So, your question. Okay, I've got a question on pads and game designs, whether it's adding like a thematic element like zombies or, <coughs> or mechanical element like worker placement or uh, legacy elements. What drives the um, demand, or what do you think drives the building of a pad? Is it something among the designers copying other people's work or taking elements from other people's work, or is it a demand among the consumers wanting that content? So I'm actually gonna just because we've had both ends talking a lot. We we'll start with Jonathan and then we'll we'll cycle around. So do you have anything to answer the question? Um, the drive just to, to sum it up to make it a little better. The drive to add what can be seen as fad or like like the popular buzzword or or mechanic or buzzword. <laughs> no, it was definitely something we had conversations about with Dead of Winter early on. We were talking about if we should retheme it because we were worried about people responding to it poorly because there were a lot of other zombie games coming out at the time. But we felt that it was too important to the game and anything we themed it to just felt like we weren't being honest to it. So I think that while there is, you can tell the difference between a game that's trying to be true to the source material or the, you know, whatever the fat is in games that are just trying to cash in and splash zombies on it because it's an easy thing to do. Michelle? Yeah, steampunk's like that, right? There's there's steampunk where it's like steampunk all the way through and you're dealing with, with uh, you know, London and Mean Streets and they've done their research and everything. And then there's the games that have Gears glued on and, and that's about as punky and steamy as it really gets. Um, you know, they're trying to appeal to an audience. They may be are glomming onto some zeitgeist and it just kind of has a feel versus the ones that are really kind of buying into it. Um, I think you're always going to have a little bit of that, but honestly, I think that I think that in in gaming, for what we're doing, it takes so long. The production cycles are long enough that it's not like you're going to dash off an app in a month. Um, it tends to be I think more cases of like people getting inspiration from similar things than it is necessarily following you know I'm going to make a zombie game I, th I think that happens too but I don't think they tend to be as successful sometimes people surprise you by refusing to get sick of things it's true <laughs> uh, so uh, theoretically you go well people are going to get tired of zombies or people are going to get tired of Cthulhu but they, they don't um, and I think part of that is that uh, some of these things are cultural identification markers, right? That, that even if I make a, a joke on uh, social media, I know that, uh, you know, assuming the joke is equally finely crafted, the Cthulhu-oriented joke will get a lot more retweets and faves <laughs> than a, a generic joke will. And I think that is because uh, seeing Cthulhu makes a lot of people go, oh, this is, this is my tribe. It isn't just that I like uh, tentacles and a sense of cosmic dread, but I also like being one of the people who thinks Cthulhu is cool. And I, uh, I collect stuff, and I'm going to continue to collect Cthulhu stuff. Uh, and so if you know that there are that, that pool of people out there who have a, you know, their desire for trend X has yet to be satiated, and you also really genuinely love that thing, and you're saying, oh, wait, here's, in a, here's a version of zombies that nobody has quite done before uh, that 
Uh, of course you're going to do that because there are, there are people who are looking for that thing. And the uh, examples that you can actually point to in terms of theme of where people have per permanently become disinterested in something are kind of slow. In the mass market pop culture, things kind of go fallow for a while and then pop up in another generation, right? That the original Pokemon kids loved Pokemon for a while, yet then you stopped caring about Pokemon, and now the Pokemon kids are all uh, 30 and 40, and they're hunting Pokemon on their devices, or, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they, you know, they go fallow, they come back. So, <coughs> if anything, it's more sort of a, a cyclical thing in there, and I, but I think that in uh, a game mechanic or game experience is, is probably easier to kind of... Uh, uh, strip mine and will have to be left fallow until somebody else comes up with a new twist on it because it is um, not about who you are emotionally as a sub-tribe but about the practical uh, play value of something. Eric? Uh, so to answer your question you were talking about like, what, what drives uh, fad? So separating fad from cultural institutions like uh, Cthulhu or zombies and stuff like that. Um, I mean this to me, it's, it's success. That's the only thing that drives it. If uh, when success, either in sales or in uh, a broadening of our uh, in broadening of the craft. So in this case of mechanics, it's broadening of the craft. Somebody came up with a new uh, a new widget to solve a particular problem. That uh, because we're especially on the uh, design side, a lot of people. We study mechanics, we study this all the time, so we, we know all the tools of the trade at this point. We either have to, uh, we either have to invent new stuff or uh, we're going to have to find the new thing. So we're naturally attracted to the new shiny thing out there. Um, some of those, uh, whether they, they will become, graduate from FAD to uh, cultural institution, I mean, we, we just don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, like in my, I can't think of anything, other any driver other than just the success that makes other people that makes people want to glom onto a fad. Okay. So, um, any questions right now? Yes. So, although the content I see about board games <coughs> comes from YouTube, so I just want your your opinion about like YouTube reviewers and anything you can say about. <laughs> Actually, Deflects. yes. So we'll go over the, to to Jonathan the story, which is because it was more of a board game kind of thing. But I do think we can, because I think it's a different culture for for RPGs and mm -hmm. than, than than board games in regards to that. So we'll start here, and then we'll go. I'll kind of play into you folks over there. So Jonathan, uh, I think that careful <laughs> <laughs> board game reviewers are great. They're the best. They're the best. <laughs> No, I think uh, YouTube reviewers are just starting to catch up with some of the things that film reviewers have known about for a long time, that when their content is paid or sponsored, it needs to be disclaimed, and that's something that can be a problem as a consumer, is that whether or not you can fully trust the reviewers based on whether or not they're disclaiming those types of things. And I think that's real important. Um, I also have a lot of opinions about, like, review... Like, I don't feel... Like, I can talk about the merits of a game and mechanically talk about a game, but I don't feel good reviewing a game. Like, I don't rate games on BGG, and I won't write a review of a game because I feel like there's a conflict of interest, and the same goes for, like, reviewers that want to design games. 
I think you should be in one camp or the other because there's conflicts of interest. But and I think it's great. Anything that helps the industry in general, like people on YouTube talking about games, if you can do a YouTube channel where you're getting 10,000 hits per video, like that's 10,000 people that are interested in games. So that's great. Eric? Uh, well, all right. Hey, another buzzword. So... Um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to touch a value judgment to reviewers at all, um, but the idea of so the rise of the YouTube uh, the YouTube pundit class, right, which is the, the the people who understand games or at least have a, uh, a personal connection with games, um, they they're actually this actually informing game design a lot more than I think a lot of us are uh, even currently aware of, and I'm starting to. Be, I'm be, I've become very cognizant of it and I've started to share this out with a lot of publishers. Um, and so one of the things we think about now, much more in games than we used to, especially on the board game side, is we actually think about um, when we're building a game, especially a big lifestyle game, something a big boxing with lots of expansions or a card game or something, is um, how, does, like, how does our game supply, the buzzword is, is converted content. But the idea is how do we supply, uh, how does the content in our game actually give reviewers or uh, streamers or stuff like that, how does it give them hooks to create their own content uh, so that they can expand their base? Because that's how, that is the most efficient way we've figured out to get games to go viral. Uh, so that you'll find a lot more often, uh, I think it, it, we're going to get better at that time over time. It, um, digital games have already started mastering that. Uh, we're going to start seeing it on the tabletop side uh, quite a bit. I've actually worked on two titles in the last year um, that have a very high, oh god, uh, converted content index. <laughs> <laughs> um, buzzwords exist because they, they're shorthand, and I still hate them. But uh, <laughs> we have a high converted content index for a lot of the games that I'm working on right now. So I'm going to send it over there uh, just to, the, to Robin and Michelle. But um, for, for RPGs, instead of YouTube, what I find a lot more is podcasting. Yeah. That tends to be the, the, the YouTube for, for, for a lot of, uh, like that kind of drive, content driver. So I'll talk to Michelle first. Like, how do you feel about like, actual play podca- podcasts and, and podcasts about games, talking about like, what's going on? Uh, so like, where do you feel that fits right now with, with RPGs? Well, first, I want to do a small shout out to Geek and Sundry because that's like that's like the most mainstream coverage that tabletop RPGs have had in I don't even know how long. I mean, people there are people who've now seen like uh, oh, what did uh, fiasco, fiasco, and then they did the whole Fantasy Age thing with yes. Ronan, and then they did uh, Misfit Youth. Right, and so you know now they think those things are cool, and and cool is the thing that RPGs kind of like would really like to be called, but <laughs> rarely have made it in the course of culture. Um, so I think that Geek and Sundry is really awesome, and of course that's mostly YouTube. But yes, I mean we do we are a text based, otherwise invisible medium. So what we have are text reviews and podcast reviews because our play doesn't have this awesome art-filled board and stuff by and large. It has a bunch of people sitting around a table talking. Uh, So it lends itself pretty well to that podcast and not so much to the YouTube thing where you have to watch people sit around and talk. Um, So I think that actual plays are amazing. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who get really into it and it's a chance to experience a game without having to be there. Um... 
I love having podcast coverage of games and talking about them and kind of going through it. I think it's fantastic, and I wish we could do it more. Um, that's pretty much it. Robin? Well, I think the idea of um, uh, gaming on YouTube and, uh, and through podcasting, first of all, should get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's ruined a, a perfectly good distinction that I used to make uh, about how uh, role-playing was the only medium where the audience and the creators were one and the same. Mm -hmm. But now, inexplicably, there's a <laughs> large audience to watch other people role play, uh, which I uh, find uh, both gratifying and baffling. Uh, and, uh, and there are actually a lot of people playing uh, games, like they're uh, recording their online games and putting it up on YouTube, and people are watching that. Mm -hmm. And I uh, love that and don't understand why you would choose to consume that in that medium, just why, the same reason I don't understand why people who uh, want instructions on how to do a simple fix of their computers would watch a YouTube video of a guy mumbling about it for five minutes <laughs> instead of like three lines of uh, text explanation. But we're now getting the point where there are star groups of uh, role-playing groups where other people show up to listen to them, or like there was a big live event at Gen Con, where people mm -hmm. went to see their favorite streaming uh, uh, role-playing group live. So that's uh, uh, an incredible opportunity for us to show off our games. And the important thing that it does is it gets you past that, how do you explain to people what the heck a role-playing game is without having them play a role-playing game, mm -hmm. right? And this, these are now extended four-hour-long versions of the obligatory how to play a role-playing game section that you have to write in every new... Uh, so, yeah, so it has all sorts of weird implications of there being like a star system of role players, uh, but it's uh, part of that thing that we talked about at the beginning that's growing the accessibility of our hobby because now we have that thing that explains what the heck it is that we do. Yeah, and it shows why it's fun. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So Eric has one follow-up. I do have a follow-up. Um, so the, for one of the things that, um, I, in my opinion, the biggest boon of the YouTube generation is not actually in the reviews. Um, uh, well, I, of course, I condone reviews. I love them. They're awesome. But the, the, <laughs> but the biggest boon that they're getting is in the tutorial field. Um, people like uh, Rodney... <coughs> oh, my God. I almost said Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no one, no one mentioned that. I do not... Yeah, the, <laughs> Rodney Smith, who gets no respect. Um, uh, who does watch it plate? I don't know if you guys watch watch it plate. Like, uh, they um, the biggest barrier, especially for uh, tabletop games, right? The biggest point of friction for these is always how do you get people to learn how to play? Most people cannot learn how to read rule books and subsequently complain that rule books are terrible, uh, which is, they're right in most cases. That's um, um, but. Watching the, watching people play, especially people as eloquent and awesome as Rodney to teach um, teach how to play, is completely, almost completely erase the learning curve for big box games. Um, I actually attribute um, the success of uh, like my biggest box four game right now, the best selling game I've ever uh, I've ever done is a game called Blood Rage, which we did about three years ago, um, which is a big box game. It's a complex game. I'm baffled by how many people have come to me and said, no, it's an easy game. Like people who don't play games, gateway gamers, come and say, no, it's an easy game to learn. Uh, a lot of them have watched Watch It Played. I designed the game in a way that I thought it would be intuitive and accessible, but it's still a big box game. 
Um, I always think my games are complicated and inaccessible, but the I have to credit YouTube for that. Okay, so question over there, and then, so we have five more minutes left, so we'll grab that one and we'll see how quickly it goes, and we'll go from there. That's it. Wow. Uh, so I'm just more curious about the state of more specifically independent uh, game design. You know, like any industry, anything that has a growth like this brings on more people hitting the industry and more companies, more conglomerates hitting the industry, and it becomes almost a bit difficult to really sort of stand out and really find that audience. Uh, where do you feel the industry is on that front? Okay. Fast I'm, and then I'm like the opposite of independent, I think, anymore, so I have no <laughs> <laughs> So, Michelle. All right. Um, so, the great thing about uh, indie games is it's easy to, you know, there's a low bar these days um, because you could do so much of publishing yourself and you can go to PDF and you can find sales. And that's actually been true for a while. Um, what we're starting to see, though, is because, because we do have so many OGLs, right? So, people who have an idea but aren't that big into game design yet, they don't necessarily know what they're doing, can find a system that they can glom onto that already has an audience. Right, so that's been really helpful. Um, and then we're seeing things like the Independent Game Developers Network where multiple developers um, are actually kind of helping each other, you know, and, and doing sort of a, a group effort to get publicity, to get their game out there, to help um, show each other's games to help learn the business end of things, which is always a learning curve. Um, just group discounts for for certain things that they could go in on, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, help with convention support, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think you really have to ask that question again. Like, what do you mean when you say indie? Um, because these days. You know, are, are you counting everything that isn't the 800-pound gorilla of Watsi as indie? Does Pathfinder count as indie? Nope. If your book is big and has a lot of art, does that count as indie? I mean, you, you kind of have to quantify that. And we're rapidly getting to the point that, like, okay, so maybe Watsi and Pathfinder and Paizo don't count as indie because they can have their own cons now and whatever. But... Um, but does that mean that everybody else is indie? And if everybody else is indie, what does that even mean? So, I don't know. Indie is a kind of a difficult term, despite the fact that I'm president of an organization that starts with indie. <laughs> so, you so, can almost look at movies and just talk as a way to define it because you're going to be studio and big studios and know right. that you know. That analogy only works in a movie industry where there's two studios. And a bunch of people, uh, and then thirteen thousand Kevin Smiths making movies for thirteen. It, it just doesn't matter because yeah. uh, most companies that you maybe think of are big in tabletop role playing games are like four people. Yep, people yeah. add four people. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> in the board game industry. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and so so really everybody is is doing it out of their house or their garage, and they if they have employees, usually those employees are remote and they teleconference. Mostly it's contractors, and they're doing work for hire, or they're having partial rights. Um, you know, so it's it's all of us kind of doing it in this distributed network of people that like get together for certain jobs, and then get together with other people for different jobs, um, and then it all comes out through like drive through RPG or Amazon or something, and hopefully looks professional enough that people think there's real companies back there. But by and large, it's it's really hard to look at it 
even looking at like a 1990s or a 2000s publishing model where you might have had a small press that had offices and people come in and then you could start to look at indie versus somebody else but now that almost has no meaning when it when you're looking at the business model we're in a sweet spot now where the business isn't uh, growing but we haven't yet reached the point where there's enough money in it that sharks have come in from outside who don't care about it as a medium in order to make money in it and only when that starts to happen only when the douchebags arrive uh, <laughs> will that analogy then have some salience. What well, are a few sharks kind of looking at? They, 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 oh, there's, there's, there's a French accent. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's, there's, well, sharks have to keep moving, but it, there, there isn't enough stuff for the sharks to buy. Yeah. I mean, at least on, on one side of that equation, I think there's been some buying on, on, on the board game side. Yeah. So, Jonathan, do you have anything to add? Or? Uh, I mean, I think you guys, in the board game industry, indies, you know, Usually do like a thousand copies or less. I think you're even less than five thousand. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's it's two different worlds. But yeah. there's you, you know, guys have whole different economies of scale going on. Absolutely, and we need them because yeah. our, our our cost of goods is so much higher. Yeah, definitely. And Kickstarter's certainly lowered that bar where it's easier for some indies to publish than to try to find a publisher. Okay, so uh, I think that's it for questions. We'll have one more statement uh, from the panel, uh, and we'll start from this way down. So, Eric, you have one last comment on... Uh... One last comment? Well, yes, yeah, <laughs> for this panel. For <laughs> this panel at the moment. Forever. I mean, gaming is awesome. Uh, it's always has been, always will be. The I think part of what makes, part, what makes it awesome is that no matter how big we get, we have this really strong sense of community on the professional side and the uh, and the the consumer side, and we um, much more than any other industry I've ever taken part in, the line of demarcation between professional and uh, consumer is almost in almost invisible at this point. Like anybody I see here is just we're all we're basically just all gamers, and as long as that stays intact, we're not no matter how many dollars come in, we're not going to fundamentally change. The psychological makeup of our industry, it's just going to be a little bit bigger and maybe a little bit more saturated and have some typical economic problems. But I don't see, I honestly don't see anything fundamentally changing about our industry for the next few years until, you know, VR or uh, orange haired presidents change things externally too much. <laughs> John, I have to bring the politics. <laughs> that's fine. No, I think, I think that's. A perfect way to state it that the industry is going strong and should continue to as long as we keep that sense of community yeah I mean it's changing the business models it's changing the way it's moving forward but that's actually stabilizing from where it has been so I think there's going to continue to be change but I think it's growth um, as we find new ways to do things and make it profitable and, and make it work so I'm excited uh, in lieu of a closing statement I'm going to give Eric a, a challenge uh, to introduce a buzz term uh, and have people think it means something and then report back to us and see how well we did. So try to get tribal disaggregation to be a buzzword uh, that has something to do with the, the board game industry. Tribal disaggregation. Tribal disaggregation. Oh, tribal. Tribal, yes. Tribal disaggregation. I'm, I'm sure you'll come up with the answer in about starting out. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you don't you have to between now and next year. I, I, think, I, to, I think it'll take you thirty minutes, sure. so we don't have time for that. But I'm confident. <laughs> Tribal disaggregation done and done. All right. So thank you everyone for coming. And uh, thank you.